Well, it's the Sunday before Christmas. I had a decision to make. Do I preach a Christmas kind of sermon? Or do we continue in Genesis? I am not a gifted holiday preacher. I'm not gifted really in anything. I get this mental block anytime the calendar tells me what to preach. Now, it is beneficial sometimes, amen? Because honestly, sometimes you'll get people in that maybe won't come at other times. Some people call these CEO Christians. Christmas and Easter only Christians. I said some people. I didn't say I call. Well, since we're off to a good start, listen, I'm blessed you're all here. Whether this is your first or last or whatever, I'm glad you're here. And uh, I decided it was in my best interest to maintain the peace and unity among the brethren, given that it is that time of year of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 1. I... You say, why Matthew chapter 1? I figure since we were in Genesis chapter 1, that's the first book in the Old Testament. We'll go to Matthew chapter 1. That's the first book in the New Testament. No, that's not how I decided where to go for my message. Matthew chapter 1, and let's read verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or privately. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. Amen. My first Christmas as pastor here, I preached a sermon highlighting verse 1. That Sunday happened to fall on Christmas Day. Some of you who were here will remember that. And there was a blizzard brewing that day. In fact, the interstate shut down shortly after morning service was over. We didn't come back for night service as a result of the road closures. But because a storm was brewing, I only got to preach to about 40 people that day. And I always told myself, the next time Christmas falls on Sunday again, I'm going to resurrect that sermon. We'll see. Um, Because I tell myself a lot of things. Amen. It just never works out. But I will go ahead and tell you that 
verse 1 is an amazing verse. Our Old Testament ends with Malachi, and after Malachi, there was 400 years of silence. And it's amazing how our New Testament opens with the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So as our New Testament begins, as this breaking of silence, if you will, is happening, we are told at the outset that Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham and the covenant that was made with David, which was the hope that was given throughout the Old Testament, that there would one day come somebody who would be the Messiah, one who would be the promised seed of Abraham. One who would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and that would sit upon the throne and rule as king. So they were looking for this one. They were excited for his arrival. And and I believe they even had the Old Testament prophecies. They were looking. They were ready to find this one that God had said would be on the scene. And then after that amazing verse, I believe there in verse 1, then after that we get a genealogy of Jesus Christ that it starts with Abraham and then it flows all the way through to when Jesus was born. And then after that genealogy, we see here in verse 18 that the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, which means it was after this manner. This is how all of this was going down. This is what was taking place. We see that Mary was espoused to Joseph. We would say they were engaged to be married. Now marriages in their culture were greatly different than marriages in our culture. I don't want to get into all those details. But we see at the beginning of verse 19, during the espousal period, they were already called husband and wife, though they had not yet consummated a marriage. The bottom line is these two right here are now in the betrothal period. We see in this verse that Mary was the mother of Jesus, which means at this point Mary had already conceived Christ of the Holy Ghost. And if you want another anti-abortion pro-life verse, then consider how this is worded. Amen. Here's a woman that is probably very likely very early on in her pregnancy. I mean, it usually only takes about a month for a woman to realize maybe I'm pregnant. Okay, I don't know how all the... Don't even want to go there. Amen. Uh, I live with one, that's enough. And, and I tell you, um, the... Uh, Early on, what does the Bible say? Mary was the mother of Jesus. You know, motherhood begins at conception. What what a great thought here this morning. Then we see at the end of this verse, the reason for her conception was a result of the Holy Ghost. In other words, she was not promiscuous. You know, there is a sick group of people out there that suggest that Mary was running around with the Roman soldiers. And that she was just one of those kind of girls. And that's why she was pregnant. Mary was most definitely a very godly young woman. The angel Gabriel said in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 35, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, 
and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Of extreme importance in verse 18 is the fact that Mary was found to be with child before her and Joseph ever came together. In other words, Mary was still a virgin. Side note, about 20 years ago, somebody posed a question, uh, not just to me, but to a group of folks standing around, and he asked, what was the greatest event in the life of Christ? Was it His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, or His ascension? And I've pondered that question throughout the years over these last 20 years, and I've, I've often come back to that question. And, and while I cannot remember his answer, I know it's different than the one I'm about to give you. Because the fact is, it's a flawed question. To try to ask, what was the most significant point, aspect of Jesus' life? Was it his birth? Was it his life? Was it his death? Was it his resurrection? Was it his ascension? The fact of the matter is, Jesus is unique in every one of those categories. All who have ever lived have been born. All have died with the exception of Enoch and Elijah that we're aware of. There are several recorded resurrections in the Bible. And all in Christ have ascended to glory because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But only Christ was born of a virgin. Only Christ's life was sinless. Only Christ's death paid for our sins. Only Christ's resurrection brought victory. And only Christ's ascension was to the Father's right hand. All of those were foretold to happen, and all of those we take by faith. All of those happened to Christ in a very unique way, and so only one man could fulfill them all, and that's Jesus Christ. You know, I read once, and this is so silly to me, but over in England, they actually, some insurance company got away with giving uh, immaculate conception insurance. Did you hear what I said? That if, if a woman immaculately conceived, she could file for a claim. What? There's only been one virgin birth, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? The Holy Ghost overshadowed her, and she conceived in her womb. Amen. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. Certainly we recognize the miracle of the virgin birth because without it we would not have a Savior. I don't like any church that says Christ wasn't virgin born. How do you have a pure Savior if He wasn't? And yet Isaiah 7.14 and at least six new versions have been changed from virgin to young woman trying to get away from the miracle of the virgin birth. Listen, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, then you don't believe in the Christ of this Bible. Why did Christ have to be virgin born? Because we needed a Savior who did not inherit Adam's sin nature. Now in verse 19, we see Joseph wasn't aware that Mary was still a virgin. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now, this is an amazing verse to me 
when we understand that at this moment, Mary and Joseph, they're under the law. They're still under the old covenant. Jesus came to confirm the new covenant. And and as we read this, we, we need to understand that Joseph had some rights under the law that he could have exercised. Initially, in Joseph's mind, Mary has been unfaithful. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24, If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of the city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. So under the, under the law, when a virgin was set to be married, if she cheated on her espoused husband within the city, then she and the man who she laid with, they were to be put to death. And this is said because in the city, you could cry out for help. You could cry out that you're betrothed. You could, you could seek for somebody to intervene on your behalf. And so the assumption was, if she didn't cry out, then she was consenting in the act. And so as we can imagine at this point, Joseph has a lot on his mind. I mean, he's betrothed to be married. He obviously loves this woman. And, and yet, now he's, he realizes she's pregnant. Boy, what would you think? And then Mary, no doubt, would have said, well, the, the Holy Ghost, the angel Gabriel came to me and said, I was going to conceive. And man, if I was Joseph, I'd be like, I might have been born at night, but it wasn't last night. Amen. I, listen, I don't know who you think I am, but I'm not, don't try to fool me. Amen. I mean, this had never happened before. What would you think if your espoused bride said something like that to you after she ended up pregnant? <laughs> Come on, Mary. What do you take me for? In my opinion, Joseph had every right to initially think Mary had been unfaithful. According to the law, he had a right to make her a public example. He had a right to put her to an open shame. And if the people in the gate determined that she was worthy of it, they could have picked up stones and stoned her to death. Listen, I'm trying to get us to see this morning, Joseph was a just man. He was a just man. That's what the Bible says. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man. He could have made her an example. He he could have taken her before the gate. Nobody would have believed that she just conceived miraculously because he was a righteous man, a man of holy character. He was not willing to make her a public example. Instead, he has a mind to put her away privately. There were means by which they could do that. As long as there was a couple witnesses and he signed it over and said, I don't want to do this. They could have broken this engagement. He could have put her away privately, save her the embarrassment. But he didn't. Maybe he's thinking, you know, I really don't want her and the child to die. If she were to get stoned, not only would she die, but the child that is within her would die. He was a just man. And it's interesting... Because Joseph was a just man, 
I believe we would conclude then that he would follow the law to a T. Does this make sense where I'm going? He's a just man. He does justly. He looks at the law and he says, yep, that's what I need to do. And we would think that if God says he's a just man, he's going to look at the law, find Deuteronomy 22, already know it, be able to say, look, you've cheated on me in our betrothal period. I'm taking you before the gate. We're going to make you a public example and whatever they decide, they decide. But he doesn't do that. And I think this shows that even under the law, God was merciful. God has always been more about the spirit of the law But sometimes we get so wrapped up around the letter of the law. Especially we good, independent, fundamental, premillennial, hellfire, Baptist. Joseph was merciful and he was called just. It is possible to be just and merciful at the same time. We've been talking about this in our Sunday school class through Micah, Micah 6.8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require thee, but to do justly and to love mercy. Some years ago, I gave a series about the balance between law and grace, truth and mercy. It is possible for you to be a just man and also a merciful man. Even under the law, there were provisions of mercy made for the one who had been taken advantage by another man during that betrothal period. In Deuteronomy, the next couple verses after the ones I just read, it says, But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lie with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death. For as when a man riseth against his neighbor and slayeth him, even so in this matter, for he found her in the field, and and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. So you see, the assumption was if you're in the city, you could cry out and you could receive help. But God was merciful in the instances where things took place in the field, out in the country where nobody was around. God gave her the benefit of the doubt and, and said she probably cried for help and there was nobody there to help her. We're not told whether Joseph considered this to be in the city or the field. But we do know that he was a man who was willing to show Mary mercy at this point. And he's still called just. Then at the beginning of verse 20, we see that Joseph thought on these things. He was pondering, what's the best course of action for me to take in putting her away privately? You see, Joseph just wanted to do the right thing. Joseph didn't act rashly. He didn't act hastily. And I can tell you that Joseph's response is an example of how we ought to respond in difficult situations. We need some more husbands who will learn to respond like Joseph does. We're always wise to take a step back and think on things before we just run to a decision. It's always good to pray. I texted Tyler Brock last night with an issue that had come up. And I said, I'm this close, but I'm going to try my best to sleep on it. He said, pray about it. That's good counsel. We're always best to slow down, act under control. 
how hasty are you in your circumstances? Do you just fly off the handle? Do you act rashly? Can you imagine how Joseph's negative reaction to Mary could have hurt her emotionally? Even if he didn't make her a public example, he still could have lost his temper in private and made her feel terrible about what was a blessing. There are many men who lose their temper with their family. And they cause all kinds of fears and troubles with their wife and with their kids. And the wife's afraid to be around the man when he's not just right. The kids are afraid to be around the husband when he doesn't respond just right. He's not under control. He's out of control. We need to learn meekness. We need to be calm, cool, and collected. For many of us, myself included, this is a learned behavior. Unfortunately, I have some doors in my past that could testify. You understand what I'm saying there? And Mary, imagine if he would have flown off the handle here. What would now be going through her mind? God had just gave her this amazing blessing. And, and what if he tore the door off the table? What if he threw over the table? What if he, what if he acted irrationally? And can you imagine what that would do to her emotionally? This is a godly trait that we need to learn to acquire, some of us men. Maybe even some of you women. Proverbs 14, 29, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Ecclesiastes 5, 2, Be not rash with thy mouth. Let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon the earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. For angry resteth in the bosom of fools. We act like fools when we act out of control and in anger. Get this now. Even if it is something that we have a law that allows us to take action. Joseph had a law. He could have, ta- he could have taken action. But he doesn't do that. He's not angry. He's pondering. He's thinking. He could have taken that law. He could have enforced it. And listen to me, he would have been justified in doing so. In the eyes of the world. But he had a calm spirit. Which enabled him to pull back and to think. We do more harm to young believers and young children when we act hastily. And really, we reveal how our walk with God isn't where it ought to be while we're getting onto them for theirs. When we are out of control, we are greatly hindered from hearing God in the matter. But when we are under control, it gives us a chance to hear from God. What does God think? What does God want me to do? How does God want me to respond? Proverbs 21.5 says, The thoughts of the diligent 
tend only to plenteousness, but of everyone that is hasty only to want. You know what that's telling us? If you go ballistic on somebody, then we are left in wanting because we're not hearing God. However, when we pause to consider, when we ponder, when when we begin to think on these things, then we are able to have time to calm down, hear from God, and we can then ask ourselves this question, in what ways can I show mercy to this individual in this circumstance? Ephesians 4.32 And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So how do you respond? If we would just calm down, we might hear from God on the best way to proceed. And sure enough, that's what we find in our text with Joseph. He had a calm spirit. He's pondering. He's thinking. Look at verses 21 and 22. Or verse 20. Let's begin there. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now how grateful do you think Joseph would have been at this point that he didn't blow up? Because now that he's calm and he's thinking about all that Mary probably had already told him, and as he's thinking on these things, behold, an angel shows up and speaks to him. Wouldn't that be nice? Speaks to him in a dream. Why a dream? Hebrews 1.1 says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the prophets has spoken unto us in these latter days. They didn't have a completed word of God. Okay? Only the rich in the synagogues had scrolls. Very laborious process. Very expensive. And for you to be able to hire a scribe, you had to be somebody of money to be able to have those things. It's not like Joseph could have said, Seems like I heard the preacher say at synagogue one something in Deuteronomy 22. It didn't work that way back then. And so the angel comes. I think I said Gabriel, but I don't think this text ever says that it's him. Just the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to him and he hears from God. I don't think we necessarily need to look to dreams today quite the way they did then. I'll just leave it there. We have a word of God. Now, I believe that uh, when this angel goes on to, to say this to Joseph, that his thinking all of a sudden goes from, this woman has cheated on me, to, what did I just hear? <laughs> right? Hold on, did, did I just hear that she's still a virgin and that she's conceived of the Holy Ghost? And that... This child's going to save people from their sins? I believe verses 22 and 23 are likely parenthetical being given to us by Matthew, the writer, the penman, to explain to us a little bit of what's just been said to Joseph 
by the angel. I wouldn't hang my hat on that, but just something to think about. I think we're told the angel says this in verses 20 and 21, and then I think maybe Matthew here is interjecting in verses 22 and 23. Now, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And then in verse 24, Joseph is obedient to the revealed will of God for his life. Amen. In verse 25, we're told again that they, are, they remained pure till she brought forth her firstborn son. And they obediently named him Jesus. And just a quick observation for any here who have been taught that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Slow down and read verse number 25 again. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. The language to me sounds like there did come a point where he knew her. And the Bible is clear that Jesus had brothers. That's a side note. Now, I wanted to use this text this Christmas season because between Mary and Joseph, Mary gets most of the attention, and rightfully so, out of the two, right? I mean, she's highly favored. She's blessed of God. She's the one that gives birth to the Savior. She labored, amen, women, to, to bring forth Jesus. I mean, Joseph was just like, hey, now I agree with you. Let's go to Egypt. I mean, she had the hard work, amen. And, and so I just wanted to kind of highlight this to tell you, Joseph... Listen, while she was blessed and she was highly favored, let's not forget Joseph this year. This man is incredible. He had to be a great man because he's chosen, number one, in connection with Christ's birth, being espoused to Mary. So God not only chose Mary because of her godly character, but Mary was also engaged to a godly man of character. So we have this wonderful godly couple, and they're being used of God. Can I tell you that those who are right with God and in right in their marriage, they'll experience the greatest of God's blessings. So why, why are you preaching this on Christmas? Listen, let me just deviate here for a second and, and, and pull back the curtain. We got a lot of men in here and you're knuckleheads to your family. And it's no wonder your family doesn't want to come to church. They're falling apart. Kids are running off doing their thing. Listen, we, we don't have couples that are Right? You know, the Bible is pretty clear. Husbands, love your wife. Wives, reverence your husband. Children, obey your parents. Masters, be good to your servants, and servants, obey your masters. Listen, the Bible is really clear. And I just want to highlight this morning that we've got a man here who had every right to make his wife a public example to fly off the handle, to be a jerk, to treat his wife like she's dirt or his espoused wife, to kick her to the curb, to do all those things, ruin the whole family. And yet, what do we find? He's under control. Instead of finding a way to execute vengeance, he's finding a way to be merciful. Even under the law. I don't like what they did to me, and I think by the Bible I have a right to do away with them. You may have that right. But can you find mercy for your spouse? So why are you preaching this? Because I spent a lot of time dealing with this. Somebody once said the best counsel is from the pulpit. I don't know if that's true. I, I'd imagine if that was true, I wouldn't still have to do as much of it. And, and I'm, not against, I'm not against you if you come. 
I want to be a help. But you have to be willing to receive the help. <clears throat> Listen, I'm just trying to help you this morning, men. You got these poor women dragging their, dragging their kids to church. Just trying to do the best they can. Just trying to raise their kids. And the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and yet the Bible says that belongs to the Father. Why did this turn into a family message? I don't know. I, I, think, it, I think it's for somebody. I, and, and listen, I, if I was sitting out there 20 years ago, I know this would have been for me. I know what it's like to have anger issues. I, know, I still know what it's like. Amen. Except now I can be a little more under control and grab my keys. And Adrian says, where are you going? I'm going for a drive because if I stay here and I don't have any money to fix doors. We all fight it, I think, at times. Some of you have been through very deep waters, and it's amazing the mercy you've been able to extend. But I'm just saying, we need to slow down, we need to pause. And I want you to know this morning, church, that it is the couples that are right with God, that are obedient to God, those are the ones that God looks down and says, that's who I want to use. Meanwhile, why isn't God helping? Because you're being rebellious to the Word of God. That's why the home's a wreck. Well, it's just so hard. It's only hard because you're not following the Word of God. And so we have Mary and Joseph. They're both of godly character. They're both being amazingly used by God, by the greatest of blessings. And I understand God is good to all, but God gives a special blessing to those couples that are honoring God with their lives. And I want our church to be filled with couples like Mary and Joseph. Love the Lord. Pump the brakes. Ponder. Think on these things. Wait to hear from God. And then be obedient to God's revealed will for their life. And then follow through in obedience. They named Him Jesus. Why? God said to do it. They're obedient. And our church needs obedient, responsive couples who are led by the Lord. It is strong families that build a strong church. Every marriage problem begins when there's a departure from God's Word. And the problems get worse when there's a fleshly response. And every marriage inevitably has circumstances that come up where somebody needs to go... "Mm." Now, I know this isn't supposed to be a family message. So let's finish talking about Christ. Joseph and Mary were both instructed to call her child Jesus. Jesus is essentially the New Testament name for the Old Testament Hebrew name Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. Notice in verse uh, 21 again, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Why did Jesus need to be born? Because mankind needed a Savior. Why did we need a Savior? Because we're all sinners. We needed somebody who could be righteous enough 
to save us. And the only one that could be righteous enough to save was one who was able to live a perfect, sinless life. Somebody that could fulfill the law. But since we're all sinners, we cannot do that. We needed somebody greater than mankind. Somebody greater than Adam's fallen nature. Therefore, we have this verse in our text. Verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. We needed somebody greater than man. See, what do we need? We needed God. God to come and tabernacle among us, robe Himself in flesh, live a perfect, sinless life, fulfill all of the law, and then willingly, obediently go to the cross, lay down His life, a ransom for many, shedding His blood that we can have our sins forgiven. He had to be buried so that He could rise again, victorious over the grave. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came for you to be saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 21. To wit, that God was in Christ. Did you catch that? God was in Christ. Emmanuel. Reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. For He hath made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. He didn't know any sin. And yet every time I've flown off the handle, every time I've disappointed my wife, every time I've let down my kids, Every time I've sinned, Jesus said, I've come to forgive you of those sins and to take them away, to wash them away and to cast them into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again. The greatest Christmas gift ever unwrapped was when the Virgin Mary, in the fullness of time, brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And now Christ offers us the greatest gift, salvation. And it's free to whosoever will. Hallelujah. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you been saved? Is God calling you today? I want to ask you if He is, are you thinking on these things? Maybe the Lord spoke to you earlier about having a hasty spirit. Maybe you're not hearing from God like you need to as a result. It could be the Lord spoke to you this morning about your marriage. However the Lord spoke to you, I would ask you to do business with God. Let's pray.